So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Now, you know if you've been with us, we've been following Jesus around with the gospel of Mark as our guide. We've, as we follow him, Christians find new and enduring reasons to keep following him, and unbelievers see why he's trustworthy and worth following. That's why we're following Jesus. That's why our journeys with Jesus matter. And so our journeys with Jesus has taken us thus far to Jerusalem and to her temple. Now, on two days in a row, we've seen Jesus at once clearing and then cursing the temple, calling the temple a den of iniquity. And so then he is confronted by the religious leaders of the day. We have a confrontation between the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, a whole retinue of people coming to Jesus to say, how can you do this? What authority do you have to try and usurp our authority? And as we saw last week, Jesus refused to play their little religious reindeer games, and he wouldn't answer the questions. And so, instead of walking away, Jesus stood there and began to teach. He taught to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The confrontation was not over. We're going to rejoin Jesus again in Mark chapter 12. We're going to see, here's the main idea, we're going to see that God gives love to the undeserving. In fact, to define divine love, divine love is a love that doesn't make sense, a love that is unsafe, a love that comes from God that's utterly and completely singular and unique. Or you might say, God loves even in the face of hate. Mark chapter 12. Now, one thing I do have to say is the, division, the chapter divisions are misleading. It would seem that in, at the end of chapter 11, we have a new episode here in chapter 12. Why does it seem that way? Well, because if your Bible's like mine, you have a big 12 staring at you. And then above that, the parable of the tenants. Um, so what, what's misleading is <clears throat> these, chapter head, these chapter numbers and headings were added hundreds of years later just so that we could find where we were in Scripture, so that we could have addresses. And so what we need to see is you can cover the 12 with your thumb, and I want you to see that there is a flow between 11 through and 12. This is one episode. He confronts the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and the confrontation continues today. I'm going to read, including last week, and we're going to do our level best to ignore the big 12 on our pages and see where it goes this week. And we're going to see how God loves in the face of hate. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, 
Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Ignore the twelve. And he began to speak to them in parables. Them being the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's see how God loves in the face of hate. First, we find ourselves at a vineyard with these tenants. Now, an unnamed man goes to all the trouble to cultivating a spot of land in the Judean hillside. He goes and parcel outfits this parcel with everything you need to be able to produce fruit and then wine. So he plants a vineyard. He constructs a fence around that vineyard to define the boundary, to also lessen water flow down the hill to go around the fence, and also to keep out marauding foxes and jackals. More than that, the owner put in the middle of this vineyard a wine press so that the grapes could be processed on site. And lastly, this owner built a state-of-the-art security system by constructing a watchtower. Now, from nothing, this landowner had hewn out of the wilderness a safe place for the cultivation of of grapes that could become wine. Now, this same unnamed owner did what was common in that day. He leased the management of this vineyard to a number of tenants. There would have been a contract they would have entered into, and a typical cut would be something like this. I built the vineyard and made it what it is. You work it, and we go 50-50. So the owner hires the tenants, Presumably, presumably formalizes a contract and leaves. He goes away to another country. Now, after planting vines, it takes four years for a typical vineyard to have any kind of harvest or fruit. And so that whole time, the tenants work the land, and when the harvest comes, they gather the grapes, press them, and store them into casks. Now the action starts. Verse 3. 
Well, first we see the owner sends a servant. Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The owner sends a servant to go get some of the produce, and instead of receiving their due, they are, that, that servant is beat and, let, and sent away back home empty-handed. Now, so the owner says, okay, let's try that again. Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he says, let's do that again. Verse 5, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. So do you see the escalation here? Jesus wants us to see that things are getting progressively worse. These, at first, <clears throat> these tenants merely ignore the wishes of the owner and beat the servant. Then these tenants take it another step. Not only do they beat the servant, they whack him on the head for all of his trouble and send him away. And then after that, they not only beat the servant, they kill the servant and mock. And all these servants are doing are coming in at the behest of the owner. And these tenants are wicked, showing themselves that they, want, they will have nothing to do with honoring the contract that they signed. Now, one thing you need to understand is in the Old Testament, one of the prominent images for the nation of Israel was a vineyard. Everybody in the original audience understood this. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders surely knew this. The people gathered around in Solomon's portico, they knew this too. And so when Jesus <coughs> is talking about a vineyard, immediately their mind would have thought, oh, that's the people of God. And they would have thought about verses like this from Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. And then down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, what Jesus is doing is telling an old story with a new twist. And everybody in the audience knew this. So, if the vineyard stood for the nation of Israel, the tenants stood for the religious leaders. And the servants sent by the owner, they stood for the, the prophets that had come over the years and over the centuries to try and call Israel back to faithful, faithfully following God. And think about, if you know the Old Testament, think about some of the ways these prophets were treated. Elijah was sent away. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks, treated shamefully. Some like Zechariah and Uriah were killed. And so everyone gathering in the temple courts that day understood where Jesus was going. He's saying, these people reject my prophets. And they knew how the story of Israel had, had ended before the exile. Because remember, six, around 600 years before, the people of God were exiled from the promised land to Babylon because they worshipped false gods because they were led into worship by false gods of their leaders. Second Chronicles 36 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers 
because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But here's the idea. They, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of, God, of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Now, when, <clears throat> when the, the, the scribes and the elders and the chief priests thought of a passage like Isaiah chapter 5, and they see, oh, there's a punishment that's coming, what they're thinking of is the punishment that's already come with the exile to Babylon some 600 years before. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of punishment, a different kind of justice. These spiritual leaders are leading the people to ruin. And Jesus is speaking directly to them. So the focus now goes from the vineyard and the tenants to the tenants and the son. The tenants and the son, beginning in verse 6. So remember where we are. He has sent servant after servant after servant, and the plan has not worked. He has one more more person he can send. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, who have they respected so far? Nobody. Have they respected the contract they signed with the owner? No. Have they respected the servants that have come with the authority of the owner? No. Do you think it's a good plan for this owner to send his beloved son? This isn't the son that he doesn't like very much, so yeah, you can go ahead and go. It's not that son. It's the beloved son. Do you think that's a good plan? To me, that sounds like a ridiculously stupid plan. If I send my son, I'm sending him with special forces people or the National Guard or media or something just to be able to get these bloodthirsty tenants to do what I want. Because at this point, all the owner has reaped from his vineyard is insults, trouble, death, and persecution. I would not send my son. I would grind these guys into dust. Just being honest. But that's not what the owner does. He sends his son. And the rest is predictable. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. So they're on their watchtower. They're looking out. Here comes the heir. They see the son walking down the street. They see he's coming at the behest of the owner. They're ready to put a plan into action that is wonderful because why? Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Trying to steal what belonged to the son. And so they're assuming that because the son comes walking down the street to get what is owed to the father or the owner, they're thinking he must be dead. So here's the son. Let's kill him. And then no one will know that we weren't the owners all the while. Come, let us kill him, verse 7 says, and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They kill him and threw him out of the vineyard. They don't even do the son the, the respect of burying him. They throw him out to be picked over by the scavenging animals, the birds of prey, and rot in the sun. 
the tenants acted like the owner would never come and give justice. They reasoned that because they were able to beat and kill the messengers and beat and kill the son, that the owner was either absent, dead, or powerless because he didn't come. They're saying we can do whatever we want. And Jesus says, verse 9, false. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, these tenants thought the owner was a fool if he was still alive at all, or a weakling, or someone that they could walk all over. Kill the servants, kill the son, and all of this will be ours. There will be no day of reckoning. We can get away with this forever. Not only will we harvest grapes, we will harvest the blood of men. And no one will come and tell us that we've done anything wrong. But these tenants had confused patience with powerlessness. You see, God expresses His love oftentimes through patience. Why in the world would God be patient with these wicked tenants? Here we see one of the ways that God loves in the face of hate. Look at all the chances that He gave these tenants. Messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger, and then ultimately the Son. And at every turn, without fail, every time, there is a complete and total rejection. No, no, no. We act as if this property is ours. No, no, no. And because they get away with it, for a few years, they assume they can get away with it forever. False. Sometimes, patience looks like weakness. But when it's applied to our Lord, patience is always love. Here we see love in the most unlikely of places. If I owned a property, or we owned it collectively, and you sent me to go to the property to collect rent that's overdue, and I go to the door and knock on the door and say, hey, listen, my rent's overdue. They punch me in the face call me stupid head and send me away empty-handed, and I come back to you and say, listen, they punched me in the face and called me stupid head. I don't know what to tell you. And you say, go back. Don't take any stupid head talk from them, and I want you to make sure that you get something. So I go there, knock on the door, and I get hit over the head with a Louisville slugger, and I come to, and I come back, and I say, I got nothing. Now, at that point, I'm not, well, hopefully you don't send me back. Right? Um, I'm not going to send anybody else in there. Because these guys are showing themselves to be incorrigible. They're putting themselves above the law. They're saying, listen, you have no authority over me. I can do what I want. And I will show you that I can do what I want by calling you all kinds of profane names and killing people that I don't like. And yet, God continues to send his messengers again and again and again and again. Do you see the love of God here? Here's the love of God expressed in technicolor. 
He is sending his messengers to people that we would not ever give mercy or grace to. He is sending his messengers and his word to people that have ignored it heretofore. And will and, and every indication would be that they would ignore it on the way out uh, from now on. But here we see the love of God. The love of God comes where the love of God, where God experiences rejection, he responds in love. Did these guys deserve that response from the owner? No. But that's what they got. In the face of hate, God gives love. But his love is not such that you can walk over him and step over him in every way that you want all of the time, or you can say, I can get away with everything I want to get away with. That is not the way this works. And Jesus wants them to understand that. He looks them flush in the face and says, I'm going to quote from Psalm 118, just like I have before. Here we are again, that old pilgrim song that we saw from Mark chapter 11. Here's what he says to the scribes, to the chief priests, and the elders. Verse 10, have you not read this in Scripture? We know that he's talking to the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders because 96% of the population at that time, they are illiterate, but not the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. He says, remember Psalm 118. Here it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, here Jesus is bringing the story home. He's telling the religious leaders what this all means. And he uses Psalm 118, but switches the metaphors. He goes from a vineyard to a stone. In essence, he goes from a vineyard to a temple. Now, what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the very first stone that's set on a foundation. So when a foundation is laid, the very first stone put in the corner is called the cornerstone for good reason. And it is put there and it is most, the most important because every stone in the building, and in fact, the whole shape of the building, takes its cue from the cornerstone. Every other stone will be set with reference to that stone. And so what's Jesus saying about being the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The stone that the builders rejected was him. He was the stone rejected. That would one day, as we will see as we walk through the book of Mark, one day he will be rejected. And the rejection is not just outside the camp, but the rejection is all the way to death. The builders, which are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they're going to reject this stone. They're going to say, no, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to go our own way. And that stone will be utterly and completely rejected. And like the son in the story, the son in the Son of God will be killed and thrown outside and put in a tomb. But yet, this stone that was rejected, this stone that was turned away by the religious leaders, that stone will become the cornerstone. Because Jesus Christ, though He died, He did not stay dead. And He rises to become a temple. Because remember, God has promised that Christ Jesus, and Jesus tells us this, throughout the book of Mark and explicitly in John, we see that Jesus becomes the one to take the place of the temple. In other words, the builders, who are the leaders of the Jewish people and the leaders of the temple, rejected God the Son, who was 
the, the, who, who should have by all rights been the one who controlled the temple. They rejected him and killed him, had him killed. But by a, majest, by a mysterious, majestic turn of divine providence, it turns out to be marvelous. The stone is rejected, but that same stone comes back alive. Jesus dies. He is rejected. And he becomes the most important bit of construction in this new temple. Now, the wicked tenants we've seen, these wicked tenants are the, tenant, are the, the Jewish leaders of the time who are leading worship, quote-unquote, here at the temple. We've seen in the last successive number of weeks that Jesus has called out these leaders and he said, you guys are not leading the people. You are taking advantage of the people. These people are coming to worship and you're, you're, you're taking advantage. You're looking, for, you're looking to make money. And Gentiles who would come and worship, there's no place for them to come and worship. Instead, they're pushed to the edges and the margins of society. And so this building is broken. This thing is over. This building is cursed. And so why Jesus curses it, but he doesn't leave them without anything as a center of worship. Instead of being a temple that we go to, now we go to Christ Jesus. So no longer will people have to deal with corrupt priests. Because in that day, the way you go to God is you bring your sacrifice to the priest in the temple. Now, if the priest in the temple is corrupt, how good do you think that sacrifice is going to be? How helpful is that going to be? If the person that's standing between you and God is godless, what that, how is that going to go? What, that's going to, what is that going to be like? Jesus is saying, listen, I am now the cornerstone. That means you can come directly to me. So Christians... Everyone here who's a believer and a follower of Jesus and has the Spirit of God indwelling them, you go to Christ directly. There is no priest for you to go to. There is no sacrifice for you to bring. There is no ritual or tradition for you to say, please forgive my sins. You go to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has become the cornerstone. Everything's changed. These corrupt Jewish leaders were thrown out. Eventually. And now, we have no mediator. No human mediator between us and God. We have God the Son, who is 100% man and 100% God as our mediator between us and God. And He, He is not like... He, he's the one who has responsibility for the vineyard now. The vineyard, the people of God, are now attended to by Jesus. And they're not subject to the whims and the wills and the eccentricities and the sins of unscrupulous leaders. Now these unscrupulous leaders knew that Jesus was talking to them. They knew that they needed to push him out of the way. They probably, they, verse 12 tells us they don't really understand everything about it, but they perceived something. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they might not have known everything, but they knew they were the ones who were the bad guys in that story. Now, these leaders are going to arrest Jesus. We know that. 
It's going to happen. Their plan is going to work. And to use the language of our passage, these tenants who killed the messengers now kill the son. These tenants take the stone and reject. Take the stone, Jesus Christ, and reject him. Now, it would seem like for someone who's repentant to say, hey, listen, you know, he just told a story about these wicked tenants killing the son of the owner. This guy says he's the son of God. We probably shouldn't kill him. But that's not what they do. Religious stubbornness is often the hardest, often builds the hardest hearts in people. Their stubbornness is hardened to unrepentance. And they show themselves to be just like the wicked tenants of the vineyard. And these tenants would pay. They'd pay with their lives because they lived as if the owner didn't exist. God's telling these religious leaders, don't confuse God's patience with powerlessness. Don't do it. But he's also showing us that God loves even in the face of hate. See, here we see the long-suffering nature of God. We see that God loves even the obstinate. Now that is good news. You know why that's good news? It's not just good news because God's kind to people like this in Mark chapter 12. It's good news because He's kind to me. I am the most stubborn and obstinate person I know. And unless I believe something within the very core of my being, I'm not going to change the way I respond. And so God in Christ has been patient over time to work to come to me and give me chances. Aren't you grateful that even in this story, I would not have given this guy another, these tenants, one more chance. But yet, God in His mercy has given chance after chance after chance after chance. I am grateful that in the face of hatred like that, we have a God who sends mercy and forgiveness. He does not go with an army to these tenants and say, they hit you, you hit them on the head, we're going to hit you on the head. You treated them shamefully, we're going to treat you shamefully. He comes with a message and says, turn, give us the produce, or to put it in the terms of the religious leaders, follow the Lord, obey Jesus, submit to Him. This is an evidence of the surprising love of God. people that are hardest to be patient with in this story are these tenants. And I would submit to you that none of us would have acted in this way toward tenants like this. But yet, in some ways, we are all like these tenants. We have been like these tenants. If we're Christians, we have been like them. How many times did it take for us to finally come to our senses and say, I need something more than myself? I need to follow Christ. How many times did it take? One, two, six, twelve, nineteen, forty-seven, eighty-six. Aren't you grateful he didn't stop and say, listen, Rich, he's such a dunderhead. Let's just forget him. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't subscribe to the definition of insanity? Which is, doing the same thing over and over and hoping for a different outcome. 
I'm grateful that the love of God sometimes looks insane. Especially love through patience. Luther, Luther, Luther said what I was thinking as I was studying Mark chapter 12. He said, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I'd kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's exactly right. But God's love doesn't make sense. And sometimes it looks insane. Especially God's love toward the undeserving. Even to Israel's wicked leaders, he sends messenger after messenger after messenger. Now, the love of God, we need to understand this as Christians, as followers of Jesus. The love of God is never going to make sense in our minds. Not really. If it does, we don't understand it. What we need to see here is a love of God that pursues the obstinate and the stubborn, the stiff-necked and the wicked. The love of God is never going to make sense. None of us would send our only sons into the clutches of these wicked servants, but yet that is exactly what God did with Christ. That is the logic of heaven. God reaches out in loving forgiveness to those who, complete, who repeatedly reject Him. We know this because He reached out in the form of His beloved Son to sinners. God's love does not make intuitive sense. There is no facsimile of that kind of love here on earth. No one is going to be patient with you like God is patient with you. God pursues people with an ever-loving, never-tiring, always-running-after, always-forgiving-embrace in the face of hatred God loves. It should bring us comfort. If the Father can pursue wicked tenants like this and love them, how much more can He continue to love us as believers, right? If you see God loving these people who you would not love, because let's be honest, it's easy to love the people who like us. It's hard to love the people who don't. Most of us don't. But here we see a God who does. And it's consistent with his self-revelation. Remember Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, patient, or slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I am grateful that he is slow to anger. He is slow. That means he's slow to be angry with people who deserve his anger. That's us. In the face of hate, he gives love. In the face of murder, we receive mercy. In the face of defiance, we receive grace. In the face of rejection, he gives forgiveness. In the face of strife, he gives kindness. In the face of war, we receive gentleness. In the face of death, he gives life. Because God gives love even in the face of hate. God loves those who are unsafe to love. God doesn't say, listen, I need to put a boundary between you and me because you're going to take advantage of me. You're going to be a person who's unsafe I don't feel comfortable, step away from me, but that's not the God we serve. We serve a God who consistently pursues the stubborn and the obstinate. We serve a God who pursues those who have harmed Him. Now, every sin we've committed in our lives have been the equivalent 
of banging Jesus on the head. Every sin, because I say that because every sin we've committed is primarily, first and foremost, before it's against anybody else, it's against God. God is always the most aggrieved party. But yet God has not responded has not responded in anger or malice toward His people. He's responded in love. God always answers rejection with love. We hate often in time in response to rejection. We hate in response, of, in response to being taken advantage of. We hate when we're misunderstood or when we're maligned or when we're wronged or when we're ignored or when we're snubbed or when we're insulted or when we're shamed. But He does not. God responds in love, even in the face of hate. I'm glad he's different than me like that. I'm glad. God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering with people. His patience does not mean he can't act. It means he loves you and he's waiting to act. So for those of you here who are not following Jesus, don't think just because you can get away with what you can get, you're getting away with what you are right now, that he doesn't see or he doesn't care. He's just giving you time and patience. And I would plead with you. There is a day when the owner will come. He is long-suffering, but he's not forever suffering. There's a day he's going to come. And just as he took away these evil tenants, he will wipe away everyone who's not a follower of him. God is patient toward you. He is kind. I don't have time to go into it the way I'd want to, but this is a sobering word for leaders here. Be careful if you want to be a leader because you will judge, be judged more strictly. Leaders can sometimes take advantage of people and not think that anybody sees or notices, but that's not true. God does. God is patient with you. You see, these tenants, they tried to erase the owner from their lives through violence. We've done the same thing. Maybe you're here and you've just tried to erase God from your life. Maybe you've wandered off into talking to spiritualists or people who are necromancers or others who, or maybe you've dabbled in witchcraft. That you are still breathing is evidence of God's grace and mercy and kindness. Maybe you've received warning after warning after warning that you're still breathing and can still hear and respond is an evidence of God's grace because He loves in the face of hate. He loves even in the face of hate. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person here who Every person here who's not following you, Lord, there are people here who are following you. And there are those who think they are, but they're not, Lord. I pray that you would, I pray that you just break their hearts, Lord. Help them to recognize, Lord, that you are 
You're not messing around. But patience is not a sign of powerlessness, but it's a sign of love. And I pray that that loving kindness would lead them to repentance, Lord. I pray also for all of us in the room who are Christians. Lord, so many of us struggle with your love and we wonder, have we done enough to earn or deserve your love? And the answer to that is always no. You love us because you love us. Because that's who you are. And so Lord, I'm grateful that you pursue us. And you don't cut it off just because we're hard. You never did, Lord. We pushed you away. You kept coming. Thank you. And we know that if you can pursue us like that to make us yours, you will keep us yours. Lord, I pray for any in the room who question your love. Any genuine Christians, Lord, I pray that they would just gain comfort from your testimony here. If you can pursue these guys, you can pursue any. And Lord, I ask that you would just bless the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that we would not consider your love a flighty or trifling thing, but something that is far more precious than we can imagine. Pray that you would bless us all, Lord, as we enter this week. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.